Welcome to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast, a weekly program that looks back at historic content from our archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by today's edition. In this audio from January 18th, 2023, the Montana Senate Committee on Business, Labor, and Economic Affairs hears citizen testimony on the Article 5 resolution as proposed by Convention of States Action. In addition to local supporters, COS Senior Advisor Rick Santorum testifies in favor of the resolution, calling for an Article 5 convention for proposing term limits, fiscal restraints, and other limits on the power of the federal government. All right, good morning. It's a pleasure to see everybody. This will be the opening for uh, Senate Business and Labor in the hearing on Senate Joint Resolution Number 2. Secretary, could you please take roll? Senator Curdy? Here. Senator Fitzpatrick? Excuse. President Ellsworth? Excuse. Senator Fox? Here. Senator Gillespie? Here. Senator Noland? Here. Senator Pope? Here. Senator Sales? Here. Senator Vermeer? Here. Chairman Small? Here. Alrighty, thank you. So first things first, everybody that showed up here today, if you plan on speaking, if you're an opponent, I want you to sign the paperwork out front as an opponent. And if you're a proponent, same deal, informational witnesses. Everybody that speaks, I want you to make sure you are signed in at the front, in front of the doors. Uh, Next off, cell phones. Please turn your phones off, I don't want to hear them. That gets pretty aggravating. And then lastly, Remember that everything you say at that podium is public record. And with that being said, Senator McGillivray, would you start on Senate Joint Resolution 2? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. Uh, For the record, Tom McGillivray, Senate District 23. That's spelled M-C-G-I-L-L-V-R-A-Y. Members, I'll be a little bit hard on Congress today. And actually, I was going to tell a joke about the skunks that represent us in Congress, but it stinks, so I'm going to skip it. So, uh, some have asked me why this bill is in business, labor, and economic affairs. And I say this without hyperbole. This bill is here because I believe this bill, or this resolution, an application under Article 5 of the United States Constitution is about the economic survival of America. And I also believe that this committee has the wherewithal, the intelligence, the understanding of economic affairs, business issues, that they can grasp the gravity of the situation that stands before us today. So I want to, first of all, just look at uh, SJ2 and actually what does it say and the guts of this uh, resolution start in, starts on line 22 of your resolution. It says the legislature of the state of Montana hereby applies to Congress under the provisions of Article 5 of the Constitution of the United States of a convention of the states limited to proposing amendments to the Constitution of the United States that impose fiscal restraint on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of office for its officials and members of Congress. So the first thing we note about this application It is, first of all, a limited application, limited to three subjects, to impose fiscal restraint, limit the federal government's power and jurisdiction, and limit the terms that officials and members of Congress can serve. Uh, 
briefly, I was an opponent of Article 5 Convention of States for proposing amendments uh, for some time. And actually in 2007, check the record, a Representative Rick Jorb brought a resolution to rescind all Article 5 application, and I voted for that resolution. But one day, a constituent came to me about two years ago, three years ago now, and asked if I would sit down with him for tea. I'm always open to talking to constituents. So I sat down with him, and he, told me, he asked me that day if I, what I knew about Convention of States. I said, I don't know a ton about it. Historically, I've been opposed. But he asked me if I would look into it and get back to him. That I did. And at that day, I made a promise to him. Whenever I make a promise, it's a sacred oath that I will do what I said. And so I honestly and sincerely looked at the material that he gave me, and that's when I went down the rabbit hole, if you will, to look at what it was about, began to read books on the subject, particularly Professor Nadelson's The Law of Article 5. I didn't just read the book. I read the footnotes to the book. I read all the references in there. I began to search the records of opponents and look into the original documentation of those opponents and came to the conclusion, an epiphany, if you will, that the state legislature is given a federal function to oppose the federal government, to be a check on its power when they are out of control. I had the epiphany that it was my obligation and my responsibility to address federal power in this capital. And so I dedicated myself to that cause, as many of you know. I'm bringing SJ2 because Congress has saddled our children, our grandchildren, our posterity with debt that they can never repay. They are about destroying the economic foundations of America. Congress has taken on imperial powers and they are encouraging and abetting and the destruction of this great nation. They are unsympathetic to the people that they have pledged to represent. That's why I bring you SJ2. The history of nations tells us that great nations rise and great nations fall. Germany, under Count Otto von Buren, or Van Bismarck, rose to the epitome of economic and technological power and success in the late 18th century, second only to the United States. Yet wars, warmongering, and after the war, debt reparations, a debt finance entitlement state, took their currency from five marks to the dollar in about 1914 to four trillion marks to the dollar by 1923. From 22 to 23, it went from about 160 marks to the dollar to four trillion in one year. So the collapse, although the, the cracks in the foundation were there, the collapse happened rapidly. Ancient Rome, you know, lasted over a thousand years, but again, a warring empire expanded too large to support, moral decay, the debasement of their currency led to their collapse. If you look at ancient Israel under King Solomon and David, one of the most arguably most wealthy nations in the history of mankind, yet because of moral decay, heavy taxation, economic stupidity, they became a nation where the prophets said in the final day before they were drug off to captivity that there was no remedy. There is remedy for this country, and that remedy lies in Article 5.
Let's look at briefly what Article 5 says, because I don't think that a lot of us have read it thoroughly and really looked at what the text says. Congress, this is Article 5 of the United States Constitution, Congress, whatever two-thirds of both houses deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-quarters of the states, whichever mode Congress will choose. So the first thing we know about Article 5 is it says there are two ways to propose amendments. Congress can propose. All 27 of our amendments have come from this mode. Congress proposed, states ratified, all 20, 26 amendments were ratified in places like this in our houses, and one was ratified, the repeal of prohibition by the state conventions. So we have two proposal processes. The convention is a convention to propose amendments to this constitution. This is not a constitutional convention. This is a proposal convention with authority under this application, which has been passed by 19 states, with authority to propose amendments to this Constitution. And those amendments are valid parts of that Constitution only when ratified by three-quarters of the states. And let me say this. You have to have three-quarters to ratify. Some opponents to this resolution will say that, oh, this convention can choose any method of ratification that they wish. Untrue. Multiple cases. U.S. v. Sprague, 1931, Hawk v. Smith, 1920. Other cases have specifically said that you must have three-quarters according to Article 5. There's no way you can change a ratification method. You have to have three-quarters of the states. Let me just take you back briefly to how we got Article 5's text as it is today. So on September 15th, 1787, George Mason, an ardent anti-federalist and opponent of this Constitution, stood up and said, the method that we have to propose amendments is exceptional and dangerous. And he said that because both proposal methods ultimately rested with Congress. So in other words, what the first draft of Article 5 was is that Congress would propose whatever two-thirds of both houses thought it necessary. And then the states could put in an application but then Congress would propose under the state's application. So in both modes, Congress ultimately controlled it. So they revised Article 5 to our current text. So the whole point of the text that we have in Article 5 today is that to put a check on federal power. Mason said that there will be a time when Congress would become oppressive. Those are his words. You might want to wonder, that he, if he was quite prescient, that he saw what we see today, which is staggering. So Article 5 is a check on federal power. It's consistent with the checks and balances we find throughout the Constitution. It's the state legislator's obligation, responsibility, duty under Article 5. When we see federal power run amok, when we see dysfunction in federal government, it is our duty to propose amendments under Article 5. Article 5 
Convention to Propose Amendments is the primary check on federal power. The reserve powers given to the states, and I'll go into that later in my close, uh, federal government has made a mockery of our reserve powers. When we are given duty and authority, it is our duty as state legislators to act. I want you to consider a couple things. The Parkland school shooting. The police, the, the, the resource officer had the power and the authority to go in, but the headline says the resource, resource officer did not go in. It was a dereliction of his duty. Uvalde, the same situation. The police had the duty and the power, the authority to go in and stop it, but the headline was the police failed to go in. It is a dereliction of our duty. What are we going to say if this country collapses? What's our excuse that we didn't turn in our application? We have a moral and a constitutional duty to act. Hamilton said it best in Federalist 85, and, and the opponents will always say that the only amendments you can bring are ones that deal with defects. Let me say that the, the founders and the framers talked a lot more than defects. And I'll just read to you Hamilton's quote. He said, by the fifth article of the plan, Congress, on the applications of two-thirds of the state legislatures, Congress will call a convention for proposing amendments. We can safely rely on the disposition of the state legislatures to erect barriers against the encroachment of the national authority. The federal government has encroached on our affairs. It is our duty, under Article 5, to push back. Over 60 years now, there's been opponents of this resolution saying we just need to use Article 6, hold our legislators accountable. But let me ask you, it has, let me just say this, it has gotten worse and worse and worse. It is time for us to act. It is our power, it is our duty to act. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I'll sit down and let proponents and opponents speak. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the opening. Ladies and gentlemen, we have over 50 people going that will be uh, speaking on this bill today to the subject matter. And for reasons of brevity, obviously many people are going to be the same, saying the same thing over and over again. So I want to start this with the proponent and I would like to give the first proponent five minutes, just due to the fact that they came in from a long ways away. Then after that, we will cut testimony to three minutes. Each person will be able to speak for three minutes, but I would appreciate it if you're a me too, go ahead and say me too. Don't stretch it out, try not to repeat, and try not to read everything that you brought. Thank you, can we get our first proponent? Thank you, Senator. Um, it is an honor to be here before this committee. Uh, I'm uh, Rick Santorum. I'm a former senator from Pennsylvania, former member of Congress from Pennsylvania, ran for president a couple of times, didn't have the pleasure of running here in the state of Montana. You guys have a late primary, unfortunately, so I didn't get the chance to enjoy your state. Uh, but I'm here um, as someone from Washington, D.C., who knows that town pretty well, just to assure you of one thing. Washington is incapable of fixing itself. It's not that it doesn't want to. It's not that it, it 
there aren't good people down there. There are a lot of good people. You may hear today that, oh, we just need to elect good people. There are a lot of good people on both sides of the aisle who really care and love this country. Don't, don't doubt that. But the system is broken. And what do I mean by that? The founders created a system in our Constitution that worked and worked well. But it has systematically been changed. People want around and say, well, all we have to do, and they hold up their pocket Constitution. We just have to live by this Constitution, just obey this Constitution. But that isn't the Constitution anymore. It's not in a pocket. The Constitution is actually printed by the General Printing Office, and it's over 3,000 pages annotated. The Supreme Court and amendments to the Constitution have fundamentally changed the Constitution, and all of those amendments have centralized more power in Washington. The founders created a republic, and they believed in federalism. They believed that a powerful central government was the greatest threat to liberty. And they believed that an individual tyrant, a president, <clears throat> should be limited in power. If you look at the Constitution, all the power is given to the Congress and to the states. The, Fed, the president has very little power. That's not true anymore. As Senator McGilvery, I was an opponent of this proposal for a long time. And what actually flipped me and got me to, to, to be a proponent was actually the previous administration. I'd been in Congress a long time, and I sort of knew that Democrats liked to centralize power, and that was a good fight, and we disagreed, and one was more centralized power, and one was more decentralized, and that was, that was a good battle. But then I saw President Trump come in, and I supported a lot of what he wanted to do. I just didn't support how he did it. We shouldn't be running by executive orders. We shouldn't be running by rulemaking that's outside of the scope of rulemaking. The president shouldn't be able to forgive half a trillion dollars in debt with a wave of a pen. But more and more and more, that's happening. I don't understand how that doesn't scare you. How does not scare that, that individual members? I'm not worried about a Congress. <laughs> I'm not worried about a Congress or a legislature. It's hard to get things done in a Congress or a legislature. It's, it makes wheeling and dealing, it's tough. I mean, heck, they can't even vote to pass a speaker in, in Congress. They can't do much in Congress, but presidents can. And both parties, I, I look at Democrats and Republicans here, I know a lot of Democrats who are afraid of what President Trump would do. And I can tell you a lot of Republicans are afraid of what President Biden is doing or what the next president will do. It's getting worse and worse and worse, and it's not going to get better. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolute. We all know this. The history of our republic is replete with it. And so the idea that somehow or another people are going to say, oh, well, this is dangerous. I'll tell you what's dangerous is not taking the power that the founders gave you. If you look back at the founders and all the founding documents, it was all about checks and balances. Tom mentioned that it's all about checks and balances. And who was the ultimate check? Who did they give the real power to in the system? They gave it to you, the state legislatures. We say, how's that? Well, first off, you got to appoint one of the branches of the government, the United States Senate. That power is now gone. That was supposed to be the big check on the federal government. And all you have to do is look at the federal budget before the 17th Amendment and afterwards. Washington, D.C., before the 17th Amendment, before you gave up your power to appoint United States senators, was a backwater town, and the only tax it had was on excise tax on liquor and tariffs. That was it. It did virtually nothing. It was an inconsequential city in America. Then the, the Senate came in and people had to get elected by doing things for folks back home. I know you don't know what that's like, but that, but that's how, that changed everything. All of a sudden, Washington exploded, exploded. And 
There is no check anymore except one. I mean, and then when I say the explosion, you also look at the Supreme Court and all the decisions, I say the annotated Constitution. All these decisions that gave more and more and more power wiped out the power of the states and wiped out federalism. People say, well, you know, we can't get along in America. You can't even go to Thanksgiving dinner with your family anymore. Why? Because we're divided. That's not new, ladies and gentlemen. We fought a war 70 years after the founding of the country. It's not new that we're divided. It's, of course, you're a huge country. Montana is very different than New York. They, we, we, you have been given, final point, you have been given the power in the Constitution under Article 5 to control the federal government. That's your power. You're at the bottom of the, of the food chain right now, but that's not where you belong. That's not where the Congress put you. They put you at the top of the food chain. Article 5 is your power. And if you don't use it and this country fails, it's on you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Next proponent, please. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and committee members. Uh, for the record, my name is Wendy Jorgensen, a third, uh, third generation Montana resident. Thank you for hearing my testimony on SJJ2 today. When our founding fathers wrote the Constitution, they ensured that the three co-equal branches would operate on a system of checks and balances with the intent that no one branch could overstep the other. It's constitutional role. These types of checks and balances were continually used throughout the Constitution in order to address the concerns of those opposed to a strong central government. One great example is built into the constitutional amendment process as defined in Article 5. Article 5 was initially drafted with just the one pro um, pathway for proposing amendments to the Constitution, the means by which all of our 27 amendments have been proposed. It reads, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. However, in September of 1787, two days prior to the adjourning of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, George Mason, whom Thomas Jefferson quoted as saying is the wisest man of his generation, rose to plead for one more proposal. He expressed his fear that the federal government would eventually abuse the balance of powers and would need to be reined in by the states. That would be us. He argued that a runaway government would not be willing to discipline or correct itself to or agree to measure, uh, measures that would restrict its powers. We all see that. Uh, this proposal, accepted by all the delegates, created a second me method to proposing amendments to the Constitution through the states via the Convention of States. It reads as, or on the application of the legislators of two-thirds of the several states, shall call convention for proposing amendments which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution. When passed, SJ2 will add Montana to the list of states currently at 19 of the 34 needed to call for a convention of states for proposing amendments limited to imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the term of offices for its officials. The states have already relinquished a great deal of their power to the federal government. Let's not make that mistake with Article 5. Montana legislators need to pass SJ2. Thank you for your time. Next proponent, please.
Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. My name is Kelsey Rothing. I'm from Three Forks, Montana. I'm here today with my husband and two little children because this bill is important to us. To me, it's a key thing in helping preserve this country for their future. And so um, I'd like to briefly share um, a, the long history of the Convention of States, but we'll keep it short for you today. <laughs> um, the century before Article 5 was drafted in the Constitution, there were at least 32 multi-colony and multi-state conventions. After independence, there were another 11 between 1776 and 1786. Um, by 1787, basic protocols for these types of meetings were well recognized. This included the call to conventions, selecting and instructing delegates, adopting convention rules, conducting convention proceedings, and most importantly, that each colony or state was only given one vote, one state, one vote. Um, convention of states were also called after the 1787 Philadelphia Constitutional Convention, and, uh, and that would include in 1861, the country had both a northern and a southern convention triggered by the succession of the southern states. Um, the northern states met in D.C. to propose um, an amendment um, to prevent succession and a last ditch effort to prevent the war. And that was the largest one ever held with 21 participants. Lastly, um, I'll just mention a few more conventions that came after the Civil War period. In 1889, a regional convention recommended uniform antitrust laws, which induced Congress to pass the Sherman Antitrust Act a year later. In 1920, a series of regional convention of states resulted in the Colorado River Compact in 1922. And from 1946 to 1949, regional convention of states met to divide up the waters of the North Platte River and Rio Grande Rivers. So in closing, the history of convention of states in America is as old as our colonial roots. Um, there's no historical record of any convention um, devolving into a runaway convention or them talking about anything off topic of the call. And Article 5 of convention of states for proposing amendments as put forth by SJ2 and previously passed by 19 other states will follow this great American tradition. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. Thank you. Would you hold on one second, please? Could you spell your last name? Oh, yes, sir. R-O-T-H-I-N-G. Rothing. Thank you. And as you people come up to testify, we can take our next proponent. Come on up. As you testify, please, if you have a name that's a little tougher to spell, it's not something simple like Don Jones, please also spell your name. Got it. Okay. Chairman, thank you very much for allowing me to testify and the distinguished members. My name is Terry Kramer. It's T-E-R-R-Y-K-R-A-M-E-R. -E -E I'm a resident of Clancy, Montana. Starting out, 19, 1787 was a milestone year for the United States. On May 13th, 55 commissioners from 12 states met in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. However, this convention was not the only significant event of that year. Just three months prior, on February 21st, the Congress of the Confederation released, released the following opinion, and I'm going to summarize for you. They stated that Congress recommends to the 13 states that the Philadelphia Convention be limited to the purpose of amending the Articles of Confederation and that it report back to Congress. So if you only consider Congress's opinion that February, it might appear to the uninformed that the Philadelphia Convention did exceed its call or run away. But there's more to the story. The previous year, in September of 86, the Convention of States, a Convention of States was held in Annapolis. The, the Annapolis Convention was formally titled, quote, Meeting of Commissioners to Remedy 
defects of the federal government, end quote. The Annapolis Convention was a general convention, all 13 states were formally invited, however, only five attended. Without the ability to reach a quorum, the Annapolis Convention had to adjourn, but they issued a call to meet the following May of 87 in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, what turned out to be the Constitutional Convention. The Annapolis call was for a broad convention in Philadelphia. It happened five months before Congress's opinion was issued in February of 87, and eight months before the Philadelphia Convention actually convened. On the heels of the Annapolis Convention in November of 86, the Virginia legislature formally approved the convention in even broader language than, than was issued at the Annapolis Convention. And realizing that only five states who had attended the Annapolis Convention, they reissued the call directly to all 13 states, and New Jersey did a similar call at about the same time period. So at the end of 1787, we had a total of seven states who had RSVP'd for the, for the Philadelphia Convention, and the five most recent states had written their commission orders to allow the same scope and power that Virginia had declared in their call, and New Jersey had concurred. So New Jersey had even gone so far as to appoint as commissioners to the Philadelphia Convention. None of these seven states at this point in time had limited their delegates to just amending the Articles of Confederation. This was completed two months, again, before Congress's opinion in February of 1787, and six months before Philadelphia convened. So finally, at the end of February, three more states had RSVP'd to the Virginia call. That brought the total number to 10, and they all had commission statements in line with what Virginia had, had issued in the call. Two states, New York and Massachusetts, did uh, RSVP, but limited to only amending the Articles of Confederation. Rhode Island did not attend. So in conclusion, the historical record shows that, the that based on the calendar events, this process was long in process before Congress's February opinion. The train had basically left the station. So the Philadelphia Convention was not a runaway. The call for the convention was broad enough to either amend or replace the Articles of Confederation. Ten states concurred, two didn't. But even those two states later on changed their commissions to match the previous town. So with that, I thank you very much for the chance to thank you. share that with you. Okay, next proponent, please. Mr. Chairman, committee members, my name is Dan McLean, spelled M-A-C-L-E-A-N. I live in Billings. I've been engaged in collecting petitions in support of the Convention of States effort to encourage state legislators to pass the resolution requesting a meeting for the purpose of proposing amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Here in Montana, we've collected in excess of 16,000 signatures from your constituents in support of passing this resolution so that we may join 19 other states that have passed the same resolution. 3,579 petitions have been collected in the past year alone with a broad base of support across the state. Our petitioning efforts have included numerous public events with a broad spectrum of interest. We have found that about two-thirds of the people we engage are supportive and sign the petition. Keep in mind that we've collected petitions on election day and have re received support from people of all political stripes, which is consistent with national polling. Your voters, your voters are fed up of the federal government and they want change. 
When we explain the three tenets of the Convention of States Resolution and get to term limits, I have personally had numerous people grab the clipboard out of my hand and say, this is a big issue for me, I'll sign on that. Term limits are a huge issue with your constituents and they've been quite vocal voicing their disdain towards uh, politicians with decades long tenure. There are U.S. Senators like Schumer, Grassley and Markey that have been in office in Washington longer than some of the members of this committee have been alive. People are sick and tired of what is happening in our country and they feel no elected representatives are addressing their concerns. I have found our combat veterans to be some of the most passionate about what is happening. Many of them have lost friends in battle, were wounded after they made commitments to serve our country and defend the Constitution. They have been disgusted with the way our government, with our government, and walked away from me unable to talk about it anymore. Senators, you have the authority and responsibility under the U.S. Constitution in Article 5 to take action. Please pass this resolution and show concerned Montanans that you're listening to your voters. I urge you to be on the right side of pursuing a convention of states meeting and by passing SJ2 and support the COS resolution. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to remind everybody, please turn your cell phones off or your ringers. Um, testimony to three minutes. Thank you. Next proponent. Good morning. My name is Matthew Cooper, two T's, two O's. Uh, I live in here in Helena and uh, Convention of States is dear to my heart and I support SJ2. First of all, Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to submit for the record truthful information on the pathways for proposing amendments. The this testimony is to counter the substantial misinformation fed to this body over the years on the topic of Article 5. There are two amendment pathways. It's already been read by other people. I won't read them again from the text from Article 5. Pathway 1, though, the congressional pathway is the least restrictive. It is not limited to any topics or any time restraints, and any proposed amendment only requires two-thirds support in both houses of Congress to be sent to the states for approval. In contrast, however, pathway two, the Convention of States pathway, is much more rigorous. It requires legislative passage of identical resolutions in two-thirds of the states. That means that 34 states must call for a convention and agree on all the topics. Only when 34 states have passed the same legislation can the call occur. The Convention of States for Proposing Amendments will be limited to the scope of the call as specified in the legislation passed by each of the 34 states. So far, 19 states have already passed the legislation, and they are strictly limited to imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and imposing term limits on Congress and federal officials. We ask that Montana become number 20. Our opposition, led by the John Birch Society, intentionally conflates the definitions of the conventions by falsely calling it a con-con or a constitutional convention. This is a blatant falsehood, as this convention of states can only propose amendments to the existing constitution, not rewrite it. Our framers provided us two ways to amend the constitution because they knew they needed to, there to be a safeguard against a tyrannical federal congress. 
Our opponents make a silly argument. They say that somehow 34 states would pass legislation for a convention whose purpose is to propose amendments to limit federal power, but then 38 states would pivot to re a rewrite of the Constitution. Mr. Chairman, I can assure you that states like Florida, Texas, and others that have passed this call to limit federal power did not sign up to rewrite the Constitution. They're using this tool as intended by our framers. Thankfully, the second half of Article 5 requires three-quarters of the states to ratify any proposed amendments. That's 38 states. Our opponents are crazy if they think 38 states want to rewrite the Constitution. We, however, aren't because we think 38 states will want to put the federal government back in its place by ratifying amendments to limit their power. With 38 states to ratify means it only takes 13 states to veto any bad amendments. That math alone prevents any runaway scenarios. In conclusion, if anyone believes in the false narrative that SJ2's youth of path Pathway 2 will cause a runaway convention, they are wrong and they are misleading this honorable body on the legislation that is before it. Please, use your power to save our country. Thank you very much for this opportunity to testify. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and Senators. I'm Joe Hushik. I'm from, that's spelled H-O-S-E-C-K, and I'm from Great Falls. Many who oppose the Convention of States resolution before you are offering nullification as an alternative. Nullification is a legal theory that U.S. states can refuse to comply with federal laws they deem to be unconstitutional. Nullification is an opportunity that only presents itself when specific laws are passed or specific federal executive actions are enacted that have an impact on we, the citizens of Montana, or any other state governments. Federally funded un unconstitutional laws and executive decrees are intentionally difficult for states to nullify because typically come from or come attached with federal funding. The Affordable Care Act is a prime example. The accompanying federal funds, heavily loaded in the early years, made it appealing and very difficult for states to choose nullification. When, a federal, when has the federal government ever presented to this state legislature the $31 trillion national debt? The answer is never, and there is no requirement to do so. So how can nullification address this? The truth is it can't. The same is true of term limits on Congress, a position that regularly polls over 80% positive nationwide. The Supreme Court has already ruled that federal term limits can only be achieved by amending the Constitution. Common sense and history have shown us that Congress will never limit its power in areas like a balanced budget or term limits. Up until 1913, the state legislatures had a powerful constitutional tool for controlling the federal government. With the ratification of the 17th Amendment, state legislatures no longer directly appointed U.S. Senators and forfeited considerable leverage over the federal government. That leaves the state legislatures with only Article 5 and the Convention of States to proposing amendments to address these foundational problems. The legislation before you today is a call for the 
conventions strictly limited to impose federal fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the, power of the federal government, and impose term limits on Congress and federal officials. The Montana State Legislature only has one tool left, that is, joining the previous 19 other states and pass SJ2. The Convention of States for proposing amendments is the last safe, nonviolent, and constitutional solution for the problem of our republic. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. Next proponent, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My name is Jane Hammond, J-A-N-E-H-A-M-M-A-N, a citizen of Clancy. I ask that Montana become the 20th state to ratify this. For years, I have resisted the arguments of the John Birch Society, who have primarily conflated the definitions of such a convention by calling it falsely a con-con or a constitutional convention. I have numbers of friends who, as so eloquently our first two proponents, resisted this convention of states. They believed these falsehoods and were afraid, as many citizens are afraid. They are false. Our framers provided us with this way to overcome the tyranny of a federal Congress. And it is time that we too join the others. One of my friends who so adamantly for a decade resisted this effort was Shirley Heron. And two years ago, she heard a lecture about the truth of this effort, which you have heard this morning. And she came to me and said, Jane, at the next session, I will join you in testifying on behalf of this effort. In Shirley's honor and all the others who are recognizing that our country is going down a path towards destruction, I plead with you to vote yes. Thank you. Next proponent. Committee members, Mr. Chairman, thanks for letting me testify today on this most important item. My name is Robert Kohler, or Bob Kohler, K-O-L-A-R. I'm a resident of Helena and a taxpayer here. I live on the west side of town. I'm here to set some things straight, some housekeeping stuff that I hear from senators all the time, including mine the other day. I am on the executive board of the Big Sky Tea Party and have been since close to the inception of this. I'm also a member of the Tea Party Patriots where Mark Meckler and Jenny Beth Martin uh, started that group and Mark Meckler uh, uh, is heading up the Convention of States nowadays. So I've been involved in this since near the beginning of this. Um, so I wanted to let you know about uh, uh, when I say Tea Party, so many people, senators like mine, uh, assume I'm uh, against the Convention of States. I'm not. I'm a strong four. And, and when we go through our Tea Party groups, which I'm part of the, like I say, the group here in Helena, also the um, 
Tea Party coalition that put all the conventions together in Montana here for all the tea parties throughout the state, we find that uh, most of us are for the convention of states. But there's a, a radical group called the John Birch Society that infiltrated our group. And I uh, have, I'm not going to read this whole thing because I only have three minutes, but I'm going to pass you a copy of this so you can see how they did that. I think it's important for you to understand how Robert Brown and Eve Brown first got into where they have a, a more of a voice than the radical John Birchers had before that. So I'll give you a copy of this after I um, sit down. Um, you know, last year we were here and and we said, oh, let the system work itself out. There's things in play. It's not working, guys. It's not working. Look what's going on. We got the FBI uh, censoring speech. We are this check. We need to do something. You called to do that. So this comes today where we are with the Convention of the States in Montana. Most of the 50 states, 27 has passed this or some process. You've heard other people say about 19. On the back of this, you'll see a map of the uh, 27 states that have passed this in some form or another, 19 have passed it fully. Uh, the momentum is clearly on our side. Um, for the record, 19 states have passed in full, six states partially, with Montana and Connecticut um, considering it this year. Don't want, let Montana be left in the dust and looking in from the outside and saying, why weren't we there with our friends from the other states? The radical birchers like to preach doom and gloom, the chicken little thing, the sky is falling. They have, they have no basis in any of this stuff. They spend a lot of untruths such as they say it'll be a runaway constitutional convention, which is simply not true. Um, it's going to be limited in scope and... Please and, wrap up. Please wrap up. Okay. Yes, um, so uh, in wrapping up, we put uh, um, a number of uh, uh, constitutional scholars come to town and... Uh, um, we had record crowds come out at all of them. Rob Nadelson was one of them. I'll close now. Uh, please vote yes for this. So can I approach to give her copies of this for all of you? Yes. <coughs> Thank you. Next proponent, please. Good morning. For the record, my name is Stu, S-T-U, last name Goodner, G-O-O-D-N-E-R, out of Boulder. My name is Stu Goodner. My wife and I live in Boulder where we run the Panther Pit a place where the youth of Jefferson County can hang out and get a free lunch. It is also where we serve as deacon at our church and teach biblical citizenship and constitution classes. It's because of the latter that I'm always excited to talk about what an amazing government doc governing document our constitution is. Simple enough to fit in the breast pocket of your jacket, yet robust enough to govern one of the greatest countries the earth has ever seen for over 230 years now. In the same time frame, Canada has had two constitutions, Russia four, Germany five, Mexico six, Poland eight, Spain 12, Chile somewhere between four and eight, and France over 15 constitutions. One of the keys to the constitution's longevity is our founders' wisdom in building in two processes for amending it. <clears throat> Part of this wisdom is making the amendment process very difficult. More than 11,000 amendments have been proposed yet only 27 have been ratified into law. There are some that propagate a false narrative about a runaway convention or somehow losing the Constitution through this process. This can quickly and easily be debunked as either ignorance of the process or worse, a level of disingenuousness. State legislatures, such as this one, established the parameters for the convention. 
Delegates that do not adhere to the wishes of the legislature can and should be recalled and replaced at any time. Finally, the work product of the convention is non-binding until ratified by three-quarters of the states. Based on this, we can see that state legislatures, such as yourselves, have control of the process from the beginning through the convention to the final step of ratifying any proposed amendments. Therefore, it is impossible for them, for you, to somehow lose control. Our constitutional amendment process is difficult, requires a great investment of time, but well worth the effort. Through this process, we've established an end to slavery, guaranteed freedoms of religion, speech, and the press, the right to bear arms, and the right for all people to vote, regardless of race and gender. One of the most important amendments, in my opinion, is that the powers not specifically given to the federal government are given to the states, and therefore the people. In summary, our Constitution is stable and strong. Our country is as well as long as it adheres to this governing document. We need to continue to strengthen the Constitution by using it as designed, such as the constitutional amendment process found in Article 5. Therefore, please support SJ2. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent. My name is Keith Duncan from Great Falls, K-E-I-T-H-D-U-N-C-A-N. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, Senators, fellow Montanans, the case for term limits in Washington has never been more popular. In multiple polls and surveys, Americans in every corner of our country <clears throat> are making their voice heard. They're fed up with politi politicians that make Congress a career. The re-election rate in Congress is well over 90%, meaning incumbents are almost unbeatable. Unless a seat is open, that race usually lacks serious challengers. This is not what the founders envisioned. What we have today is not a citizen legislature, but rather a professional ruling class that lives and works in Washington, D.C. Term limits would reverse this trend by ensuring that open seat races are held on a regular basis. Term limits would give Congress a fresh, a fresh infusion of talent and members would be empowered to be more involved. That would be a major win for we the people. One of the loudest arguments against term limits goes something like this. Lobbyists love term limits because it gives them more influence. Let's consider that for a minute. If you were a lobbyist, what would be your preference? Working with legislatures that you knew well and have a relationship with, or where there is constant turnover? Building relationships takes time, and our lobbyist friends know that. That's why they oppose term limits. Allow me to quote former mega-lobbyist and convicted felon, Jack Abramoff. Like almost every lobbyist I knew, I didn't want to have to build relationships with new members constantly. A representative who stayed in office for decades and was a friend was worth his weight in gold. I'm continuing to quote, but permitting people to rule for decades is a recipe for disaster. Is there really any difference between a permanent Congress 
and a president for life, end quote. Please support SJ2. Please return our government to we the people. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent. Hi, my name is Christine Agin, A-G-I-N, and I'm from Stevensville in the Bitterroot Valley. I'm here to testify today because my background is in economics and finance, and I'm here to speak to you on the need for a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. The federal government has maxed out its ability to tax its citizens. There is an economic law called Hauser's Law that demonstrates that the federal government simply cannot collect more than 19% of GDP in tax rates, or in taxable income, regardless of tax rates or new tax avenues. Please see the chart that I have provided for you guys. Doesn't matter what they do with tax rates, this is all they can collect. And herein lies the problem. For our current out of control federal government, because they are currently spending 25% of GDP, a full 8% more than they are able to collect. Spending has exceeded 20% of GDP for over two decades now, with no sign of slowing. What this means is the federal government either has to print or borrow money to cover their continued shortages. If they borrow it, then the interest is added to the debt that they then have to have more revenue to repay. If they print it, we see rampant inflation. Our federal government has been juggling these two techniques for their runaway spending. Doing this is what is causing our inflation recession cycles that have accelerated and caused harm to the people of this country. Our national debt is $31 trillion. If you tried to count to a trillion dollars, it would take you 31,963 years, and we have 31 times that. Our current inflation rate is somewhere between 7 and 10%, and that's if you don't include food and energy, which of course we need. That means that senior citizens on fixed incomes have 10% less savings than they did last year. And the federal government shows no signs in slowing its spending. See my spending chart. No federal politician wants to take the hard task of cutting spending. Do you know why? Because every spending item has a voting constituency and a donor base. Nobody wants to take that on. So where does this, that leave us? How do we get the government to stop spending money that it simply cannot collect? I have heard no solutions outside of an Article 5 convention to pass a balanced budget amendment. Okay? This would not only help families now, but this would stop this from happening to future generations. In the 1980s, America's strategy in the Cold War was to get the Soviet Union Please to Please wrap up. I will. To spend money that they simply could not collect. We engaged them in a spending strategy that collapsed one of the greatest superpowers in the world. The opponents to this Article 5 convention will try to scare you that if we do this, this might happen or that might happen or this could happen with no evidence. I'm here to tell you, if we do not pass a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution, fiscal collapse will happen. 
and I have brought the evidence. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Hello, my name is Lindsay Doyle. Lindsay is L-Y-N-D-S-E-Y. And I am also from Stevensville, Montana. And I am here to briefly talk to you also about term limits. Consistent turnover in our federal government ensures new members who are free from the institutional biases that long-term service brings and results in less of the current tradition of exchanging favors. We've already been over re-election rates. I've included two graphs for you showing visually how those have turned around. Enacting term limits will also encourage more level competition. Incumbents are at a marked advantage. They have several taxpayer benefits, like receiving their, their government salary while campaigning and a paid staff to assist them. Travel allowances and franking benefits alone save them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Donors almost exclusively contribute to incumbent campaigns as they are seen as a good investment with a high rate of return. Limiting the influence of special interests is extremely important in our efforts to bring about change in Washington. Federal lobbyists in 2022 spent $3.6 billion. This immense amount of spending isn't indicative of the amount of influence they have over our policy. The view that long-term service is essential to understand the complex legislative process speaks to the sad state of our current congressional system. We are supposed to be a government of the people. However, if the people can't navigate the system, the process is no longer of the people and needs to be changed. I encourage you to do your research and to support this bill on our behalf. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next proponent. Good morning. My name is Peggy, P-E-G-G-Y Bates, B-A-T-E-S, and I'm from Thompson Falls. Mr. Chairman, when I'm trying to decide where I stand on a certain issue, I like to look at who supports the issue and who uh, opposes the issue, then do the research of the facts and make my decision. Here are some people who support the Convention of States. Governor Ron DeSantis, Senators Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, Tucker Carlson, Dr. James Dobson, Dr. Ben Carson, David Barton, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, Michael Ferris, Rick Santorum, and Mark Levin. Mark Levin wrote the book, The Liberty Amendments, but when he first had the idea of writing the book, he was going to write against calling a convention of states. He researched and studied to write his book, and then he said, wait a minute, I'm on the wrong side of this issue. The difference seems to be between researching the facts and listening to the scare tactics. However, I think there is a group of people, as already mentioned, that should be your greatest consideration, and that is the over 16,000 people here in Montana who have signed a petition asking you to support calling a convention of states. Now let's look at some people who oppose this issue. Hillary Clinton is recorded as saying, there's a big move for change coming to this 
from the right, and I think it would be disastrous for our country. They want to have a constitutional convention to rewrite our constitution. I hate to correct Hillary, but it is not a constitutional convention. It is a convention of the states for proposing amendments, not rewriting the constitution. Others who are opposed to this are Senators Barry Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Planned Parenthood, ACLU, Common Cause, Sierra Club, League of Women Voters, Greenpeace, and the John Birch Society. A delegate to the Constitutional Convention, William Davey, said, it is easier to alarm people than to instruct them. I hope that you will consider the facts and study this and not just listen to scare tactics. Please support SJ2. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Oh, Mr. Chairman and Committee. James Barkley, B-A-R-K-L-E-Y, Guildford, Montana. I'm a supporter of SJ2, and I'd like to urge you to vote yes on it. I believe the time is now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next proponent. Good morning, Chairman and Committee. I'm Georgia Miller, G-E-O-R-G-I-A-M-I-L-L-E-R. And I am from Great Falls. I'm a third generation Montana. I have 12 grandchildren. I 100% support SJ2. I believe that America is the greatest nation in the history of the world. And our federal government is out of control. I thank God every single day that I get to live in Montana and I get to be, live in the United States of America. But when I look at the future, it seems like our country has been, is going in the wrong direction. And I fear for what could happen for my grandchildren. I have had an amazing, amazing life here in Montana. And I would love for my grandchildren to be able to have the same life that I have. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, my name is Cliff Siskel, S-I-S-K-O, from Miles City, Senate District 20. I would like to speak to the power of fear. Opponents of SJ2 have a simple strategy for stopping the passage of SJ2, and that is fear. Fear of any COSPA morphing and replacing our U.S. Constitution. Fear that the U.S. Constitution will commandeer, the Congress will commandeer the COSPA with unpredictable results. Fear that the COSPA will wander off topic with unpredictable results. Fear that Montana will not have equal influence and an equal vote. Fear of change. This false fear narrative pushed by the SJ2 opponents has no historical precedence. Fear is an easy sell to people with limited knowledge and it strikes an emotional response. Fear paralyzes. Well, on the other hand, proponents of using Article 5 COSPA 
have a much more difficult strategy for passage of SJ2. Proponents have to educate, and education perpetuates knowledge and understanding, which calms fears. What is possible possible consequence of giving in to fear and not doing anything? I hear every day from people I talk to that they fear if what is happening in Washington is not changed or stopped, we will find ourselves in a civil war. David Horowitz says in his new book, Final Battle, and I quote, America is on the precipice of another civil war, end quote. One of our most ardent opposition is the John Birch Society. The JBS has a constitutional mission statement, and it states, our mission is to bring about less government, more responsibility, and with God's help, a better world by providing leadership, education, and an organized volunteer action in accordance with moral and constitutional principles. The JBS website also states for 60 years the John Birch Society has been the force that protects and restores American liberty and independence. If the JBS has been at this for over 60 years and they have a mission statement to bring about less government, then how come Washington, D.C. has been growing exponentially during this time period? How come national debt is over $31 trillion? How come we are on the verge of 83,000 new IRS agents budgeted for? As much as I support the JBS mission, I have to ask myself that after 60 plus years of this, how has it worked out? Please wrap up, good. sir. The efforts of the John Birch Society have not produced the desired goal of their mission statement in over 60 years. Given that fact, I say it's time to use another method given us under the Article 5 by the founders. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Good morning, Mr. Chairman. Honorable members, thank you for allowing me to speak today. Um, those who oppose an Article 5 convention, I'm sorry, my name is Sandy Dunning. I'm from Shepherd. It's D-U-N-N-I-N-G. Um, those who oppose an Article 5 convention of states oppose it out of fear. Um, a runaway, a fear of a runaway convention or fear of getting rid of the Constitution altogether. You know what I'm afraid of? I am afraid of a DOJ that will become completely politicized and act at the behest of one party. I'm afraid of that same DOJ that would spy on and encourage prosecution of parents who disagree with what their children are being taught in school. I'm afraid to see a president and his aides only allow government approved, fact checked, propaganda to be released to the public. I'm afraid of a Federal Reserve that prints $6 trillion out of thin air. I'm afraid of vengeful DC bureaucrats accumulating power to force citizens to take an experimental drug in order to serve in the military or to hold certain jobs. Mr. Chairman, as you know, these are not imaginary fears. While we sit here and listen to the opponents fearmonger about things that might happen, our great Constitution is being trashed. To the opponents of this resolution, I ask, what are you not afraid of about the reality that surrounds us today? We are listening to ridiculous excuses and ghost stories as to why we can't use the Founders' tools, why we deal with the preposterous arguments about a runaway convention. 
the circle of liberty is growing smaller and our treasure, treasury is being looted. We are less free and less prosperous because a nanny state will not allow us to make our own decisions and live our own lives. We can't develop energy and build pipelines. We can't fully develop natural resources and provide jobs to our citizens because a small group of elites in the deep state tell us we can't. The feds think that they have the authority to shut down our economy for whatever crisis they declare. And tell me again, what is so scary about a convention of states to propose amendments? Start being scared about what's real and what's right in front of your eyes. Only you acting in your constitutional role can save this country. A convention of states to propose amendments is not a dangerous or crackpot idea. It is in the mainstream of constitutional governance. It is a tool right there in your toolbox. It's time to do your duty, advance this resolution. If not now, then when? When do we finally acknowledge enough is enough and agree to utilize the measure granted to us by the Founding Fathers in Article 5 of the Constitution? Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, proponent. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and committee. My name is Kristen Wing, W-I-N-G, not WIG. Um, I'm from Thompson Falls, Montana, and I'm going to make this brief because I don't want to repeat. Uh, terms such as limited power, the separation of powers, the rule of the people, checks and balances, and the need for amendments all existed for one simple reason. People abuse power. In fact, Washington asserted the human deprav depravity could ultimately destroy the Constitution even with the checks and balances it possessed. Let me close with James Garfield. More than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate it. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it will be it will be because the people who represent the enterprise, the, cultural, the culture, and the morality of the nation did not control the political forces. It is time that the people who represent us take back control and make the sovereign state of Montana the 20th state to be part of the Convention of States. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, my name is Sharon Nason. Last name is Nancy A-S-O-N. I think you would pretty much have to be a Rip Van Winkle to not be aware of the heightened level of dysfunction in Washington, D.C. over the past few years. The partisan bickering, backstabbing, lying, and overall irresponsibility of Congress to say nothing of the slew of executive orders has literally been disgusting to watch. When, I, when was the last time that Congress passed a budget? I couldn't remember, so I looked it up, and it was 1996, almost 30 years ago. They just keep passing the continuing resolutions. Does anyone actually think Congress will pass term limits on themselves? I don't. I don't believe they're going to give up the perks that come with their positions. How is it that members of Congress who make a little less than $200,000 a year suddenly become multimillionaires after a few years in Congress? Yesterday, I happened to be in the Senate gallery when you voted on your salary for 2025, and you increased your salary to a whopping $13 in some sense an hour. 
My granddaughters work at Taco Bell and they make $16 an hour. Each of you is what Congress was intended to be, servant leaders. None of you are going to become multimillionaires by serving in the Montana legislature, no, nor will this become a long, lifelong career for you. And thanks to responsible decisions by elected officials, Montana has a surplus, unlike the federal government that has a $30 trillion debt. So I believe it is long past time to force Congress to operate more like the Montana legislature than the way they've been operating um, of late by forcing them to pass a balanced budget, limit their power to intrude on Montana, and return them to servant leaders by imposing term limits. That's why I support SJ2 and the Articles of Convention. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, committee members. My name is David Wyrick, W-Y-R-I-C-K. Um, this is my wife, Diane. We are from Forsyth, Montana. And we would just like to ask that you support and vote for SJ2 so that Montana can become a member of the Convention of States. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Mr. Chairman and committee members, my name is Ashton Loomis, A-S-H-T-O-N, L-O-O-M-I-S, and I'm a resident of Helena. I'm a proponent of SJ2 because something is broken in D.C. This is a mechanism the framers gave us to rein in the federal government. It is our last offense to save our nation from corruption and out-of-control spending. Please vote in support of SJ2. Thank you. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Um, Mr. Chairman, and committee. My name is Donna Barkley, and I'm a, I, um, I'm a proponent of SJ2. I live in Guilford, Montana. I'm a mom, a grandma, I'm a veteran, and a school teacher. I've looked at this, and this is an important thing for Montana. Please consider it. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity today. Uh, my name is Jody Loomis. L-O-O-M-I-S. Uh, I live in the Helena Valley. Um, I'd just like to say that I don't see any, any calls or any bills suggesting that the state of Montana uh, rescind its balanced budget act or law. Um, I don't see that we should, uh, people are calling that we end term limits. So it's pretty clear that the state of Montana supports and the people of Montana support term limits and balanced budget. So. What's the holdup? Um, I think it's the fear of the process. Um, I've been a, um, a student of the Convention of States for many years. Um, I've followed, um, I've listened to the arguments uh, for quite a while and thought about them. Um, I remember that the Convention of States had a, a simulated convention that they held where they brought individuals in from state legislatures they all got together and had discussions over what's our problem, what do these states share with one another, um, and they discussed how could we limit the federal government to help the states out. I would like Montana to be part of that discussion. Um, this, it's taken off. Last time when this first came before the state legislature, the article um, the, um, for the state to call for this convention, um, I testified in this very room. I think I, there's four people that were proponents 
and the other half of the room was opponents. Uh, oh man, this isn't going well. Look at today. I mean, this is a wonderful day. Things are really changing. So um, uh, I'm not afraid of the process. I have much more trust in our state legislature than I do in what's going on in Washington, D.C. Um, and um, what scares me is $31 trillion in debt. We're looking at a point where we can't even finance the debt and it's time to pay attention. So I ask you please um, support this and um, thank you for your time. Thank you. Next proponent, please. Do we have any more proponents in the room? Good morning. Thank you for listening to our love of country, basically. My name is Lynette Band, L-Y-N-E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, Band, B-A-N-D. I live in Lolo, and I would just like to remind you that the states created the federal government. The gov federal government did not create the states. Please vote yes on SJ2. Thank you. Do we have more proponents in the room? More proponents? Okay, seeing none, we will go online. I know we have some proponents online. Yes, Mr. Chair, we have two uh, proponents online today, uh, first of which will be Alicia Hamilton. Okay, please, Alicia. Hi, my name is Alicia Hamilton, A-L-I-C-I-A, last name Hamilton, H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N. And can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. So, Mr. Chair and members of the committee, I was here two years ago in support of SJ2 as an onlooker who spontaneously felt the need to testify in support of Montana State Application for Amendment Convention that would hold our federal government accountable. Um, I had never been to a congressional committee hearing, and I'm not really politically inclined, though I am fiercely patriotic and served as a physician assistant at that time for 28 years in the Army National Guard. Um, I was dumbfounded at that time about the amount of street slang that was given in testimony. I thought that term limits and fiscal restraints were common sense terms, but had not heard of a con-con. Um, I'm thankful for that day because it really opened my eyes. I delved into the education that seems to be conveniently removed from our public school system, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers. Uh, I signed as a constitutional coach at Wall Builders, watched hours of class time from the John Birch Society, the Constitutional uh, Study Podcast, Freedom Papers Podcast, uh, hosted by Turning Point USA and more, and I'm by no means a subject matter expert. However, I am now an engaged citizen. So last time I was here, I was a business owner of a small independent clinic, and it had closed due to federal monopoly monopolization of the healthcare system. Payment for services contingent on ICD codes uh, are a system that began only to stratify disease epidemiology across the nations and now deemed as a pay scale for services. Our system is double-blinded where the patient has no idea what the service is worth and the provider doesn't know if they're gonna get paid and this is not a free market system. If there was one thing that COVID taught me is that our freedoms are always under attack, our three-legged system has been made to have checks and balances and something that democracy does not do the same way. 
This year, our government has pushed the investigational genetic treatments on our military, something that wasn't supposed to happen after the Tuskegee experiments or the anthrax vaccinations. They pushed the investigational genetic treatments on the public under the unelected three-letter organizations, despite Nuremberg trials. EUA testing and treatments were all that were allowed. Unconventional treatments and free speech was suppressed. One world order is no longer a conspiracy theory. The delegation, uh, the delegative authority of Article 5 is only for an amendment. And I encourage you to use this tool to legally pressure federal Congress to hold their oath to the Constitution. We do need term limits. We do need fiscal restraints. Uh, the the uh, Well, I would just encourage you to not live in fear of what may happen uh, because we have to be moral to expect a moral outcome. And the only way that we can continue as a joint effort with our state brothers is to push Congress via an amendment ratified by 38 states, which is the fail safe for why this cannot go awry. Put our hat in for Montana and please use your delegative authority to be one of the 38. I would love for Montana to be number 20. Thank you for this time to testify. All righty, thank you. Next up. Next up, we'll have Vince Zortman. Good morning. Vincent Zortman, Z-O-R-T-M-A-N, just like the town. Um, can't add anything to all the wonderful statements that have been made. I just encourage you to support SJ2. And I will tell you the Flathead Valley is on board with this idea. We drew 300 people on a rainy May night to listen to Senator Santorum talk about this. The wonderful crowd. We've been to county fairs. We've been to gun shows. The Flathead Valley's on board. Please support SJ2. Thank you. Thank you very much. Questions from the committee? Senator Vermeer. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, I've got a question for uh, Senator McGillivray. Um, Mr. Chair, Senator Vermeer. Uh, Vermeer. Thank you, Chairman. Um, Senator, I've gotten a lot of emails and messages about uh, opposition, uh, from the opposition, that uh, Congress will control uh, the convention uh, for proposing amendments. Uh, do you see this as a problem, or what do you, uh, how do you feel that uh, uh, the control of the convention would be? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator, I, I, I don't think Congress will control the convention. And two reasons. One, you have to remember that the whole purpose of the Article 5 convention for proposing amendments, according to Mason, both proponents and opponents said this, it was designed as a congressional bypass. Mason felt that, that at some point Congress would become oppressive. So they designed Article 5 with the convention to propose amendments, where the states would propose amendments to take Congress out of having control of both mechanisms. So the whole point of Article 5 was to give a different mechanism other than Congress. Secondly, uh, courts have ruled, and you'll read this if you want to read Idaho versus Freeman, 1981, or uh, Dry versus Blair, 1975. Both those cases and others uh, indicate that Congress, 
Congress has Article I powers. In other words, their powers, their statutory powers, do not apply to Article V. Article V powers are a federal function of the, of the state legislatures and Congress, so all powers are delegated through Article V, not Article I. So, and again, I'd be happy to give you those cases if in your copious spare time you'd like to read them. But I can give you direct quotes right out of there that say that Article I powers or Congress's uh, necessary and proper powers do not apply to Article V. Thank you. Thank you. More questions? <clears throat> Senator Dolan. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think I'd like to ask um, maybe let's have Mr. S or Senators, former Senator Santorum, if he could come to the stand. Thank you, Senator, for thank being you, here. Um, Mr. Chairman, the good uh, Senator just addressed uh, part of the process for control, but I was wondering if you could give me your uh, enlightenment on how, uh, if you say that they, um, people say that you cannot control the process. Yeah, there's two elements to the issue of control. One is calling the convention. It's very clear Article 5 says Congress shall call a convention. They, once there are uh, 34 petitions that meet the criteria uh, of identical petitions or very, very similar petitions, it says Congress shall. It doesn't give them any discretion. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two is maybe more important, which is who's actually going to control the operation of the convention. Some have suggested that somehow Congress has some plan where they'll step in and they'll run the show. Uh, believe it or not, Congress actually, uh, there are members of Congress in the past who actually proposed such things. Uh, they were, they were uh, ideas put forward in the 1960s when there were a lot of these uh, Convention of States Resolution, ERA, others that were being pushed by the states. And so Congress felt, felt worried about it. So they proposed, several members proposed things to say, well, we're going to try to govern this process. They never got a committee. It hasn't been one introduced in 40 or 50 years. Uh, they, they were, there's no support. There's no, as, as the Senator McGovery said, this was a process set up to bypass Congress. This was a process they, the founders who didn't trust federal, the, the, the central government, didn't trust governors, executives. That's why the governors aren't involved, uh, because they, they wanted the body closest to the people to have the final say, to be, as I said, at the top of the food chain. That's where the legislature actually is in the Constitution. That's what you were intended to be. The states were the sovereigns. They, they formed this country, but the states were the ones who were supposed to have the ultimate authority. The state legislatures in particular were the ones. As far as control of the convention itself, the state legislature controls. How do we know that? Because you can pass, as, as I'm sure you will, when, when this resolution, if it, if it becomes a reality, you will pass a, 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 uh, a resolution or a statute, I don't know how you'll do it here in Montana, that will actually designate how you're going to appoint the commissioners to the convention. So you will decide that here in the legislature. You will have, I'll give you an example, your next door neighbor in Wyoming. Wyoming passed such a, a thing, they haven't passed the resolution, but they passed the, uh, uh, the, the statute that, that defines how delegates, or they're called commissioners, are appointed. And they have certain things that they, that, uh, they have a sort of a faithful delegate provision that if 
the uh, legislature says, well, here, is, here are your constraints, and you can do that. The state legislature can pass constraints on the delegates as to what they can and can't vote for. And if in, in Wyoming, if you violate that provision, it's a felony subject to five years in prison and a hefty fine. So the point, I guess the point I'm trying to say here, you have the power to control this entire process with respect to your own memberships and then collectively each state with respect to the convention as a whole. It is not the federal government. And having been in Washington, having, having uh, served there for, a long, uh, for 16 years, they are not going to touch this hornet's nest. If, if 34 states finally come together and do this, that means there's a broad national support and there are not a lot of courageous people in Washington, D.C. who are going to stand up to 34 state legislatures in a broad move across the public to try to mess with this. Thank you. Follow-up? Follow-up. Mr. or Senator Santorum, um, it was talked a little bit about nullification. Could you maybe address that and enlighten me on that a little bit further? Well, we see calls on that, frankly, on both sides. Uh, you have this with, you know, the sanctuary city, uh, uh, cities movement that, you know, we're going to ignore federal law, we're not going to enforce federal law. Uh, my, my sense on that is that uh, the idea of, of proposing nullification, that we fought that battle in the Civil War and uh, really haven't heard much from nullification since then, nor should we. Uh, you know, we are, we are a, a, a constitutional republic. Uh, we live by those constitutions, not to say that, and, and going back to what members have said and holding up their constitution and saying this is, this is the law of the land, we have a court that interprets the constitution. And people say that, you know, we're not, you know, we don't live by it or we're not adhering to it. The, the reality is we do adhere to it as interpreted by the Supreme Court. And, and if you look at the 27 amendments that have passed since the founding, what amendment haven't we lived by? Do we not live by the 17th Amendment? Are our senators no longer popularly elected? Do we not have an income tax? Do we have, do we have prohibition and was it repealed? I mean, if you look at every amendment, which amendment that has passed don't we live by? You could say the 10th Amendment, but, and, and, and that's a battle. But it's not that the states don't have the right to go to court and, and fight the federal government. It happens all the time. So the idea that, that the, the, the amendment process, when you can get 38 state legislatures to come together and affirm that this is what a change we want in the Constitution, that is broad national consensus. You're not going to see the Congress or the courts anytime soon say, oh, well, we're just going to ignore that. That's just, just not the reality of how this would work in a, in a republic. I have another question from Senator McGilvery. Yep. Mr. Chair, Senator Nolan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So if you can enlighten me a little bit further on that, it's been talk about a runaway. It hasn't been a lot of talk, but a little bit of talk about a runaway. Um, why don't you think that could happen? Well, thank you, Mr. Chair and Senator, for the question. In my study, in my work, my confidence that a runaway is, for all practical purposes, impossible. And I'll give you two quick reasons. Number one, this application, and you read it, and make note, this clearly is a legal document under the authority of Article 5, an application for a convention to propose amendments. It clearly states multiple times it is limited. We all know as legislators that when we have proponents or sponsors come before committees 
to tell the intent of the legislation. If that legislation is ever questioned in the courts, the court is going to go back and look at the proponents and the sponsors of what did they say is the intent of the legislation. In this case, the courts would go back and say, if ever any uh, amendment was passed that was beyond or ultra varies beyond the authority of that application, the courts would go back and say, what was the intent? They'd look at 34 state legislatures, 34 sponsors, thousands of proponents that said, this is a limited application. And the courts would say, it's a limited application. It's very clear. Secondly, I do have a bill that's uh, been brought up a couple times by Senator Santorum. Other states have passed it that will clearly articulate how we choose our commissioners, our delegates to that commission, to the convention. My bill has for Montana having five commissioners. So let's look at the practicality of that. Those commissioners will be given instruction. Those commissioners in other states have the same laws, are given an oath. And if they go beyond the instructions and their oath to stay within the limited application, they are subject to recall and fine. We know that the states can control their commissioners because in Chafala versus Washington, which was a 2020 case, uh, two rogue commissioners in Washington that tried to vote for Trump, that these are electoral college delegates, were recalled and fined. The states, we know, the courts have said the states can control their commissioners. The first commissioner to try to go out of line, propose an ultraviaries amendment that's beyond the scope of the application is recalled and fined. Lastly, Skidville, Montana. You have five commissioners there from Montana. You'd have to get three of that delegation to change, to outvote the rest of the delegation to say, let's go ultra-various, let's go beyond our application. You'd have to get to them to say, we're breaking our oath, we're breaking our instructions, we're disobeying what 34 states have come here to do. It's, it's a matter, it comes down to a matter of integrity there. Uh, and if you got those three, you've got to have 34 other states. The idea that you're going to get that many people to disobey their instructions, break their oath, subject themselves to recall, fine, and in some cases felony, goes beyond the pale. Thank I don't you. Think that can happen. Follow up. Follow up. Along these similar lines, in 2016, there was a simulated uh, convention and considered a runaway. Would you like to address that? Help me understand that. Yeah, I don't have time to address that uh, in detail, but I would say that Professor Nadelson. Uh, you heard uh, Joanne Martin's testimony today. She wrote a missive that suggested that the 2016 convention in Williamsburg, which is a simulated convention, it's online, a convention state. You can watch it, how well it worked. You can listen to what amendments they proposed. I can give you the detailed amendments they proposed. None of those amendments went beyond the scope of that application. Professor Nadelson wrote a very good piece that addresses that, and I'd be happy to share it with anybody. Thank you. Senator Pope. Mr. Chair, thank you uh, for the sponsor. Mr. Chair, Senator. Mr. Chairman, Senator Pope. Thank you. This won't, won't take long. Um, you mentioned just a few minutes ago that this document really limits the scope. Um, I'm going to read the, the text here uh, at the bottom of page one, Mr. Chair, if I might. Um, calling for a convention of the states limited to proposing amendments to the Constitution of the U.S. that impose, number one, fiscal restraints on the federal government, 
Number two, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. And then limiting the terms of office for its officials and members. Mr. Chair, if I might. Um, Senator, if we had a hearing in this body on any of those three items, much less the collective part of those three items, which defines a lot of the federal government's uh, relation to the states, for example. You know, we would have 50 amendments on each one of these. I mean, can you explain how there's some discipline in the process that you're trying to Thank suggest? Thank you, Mr. Chair, Senator. That's an excellent question. I think you have to look at the practicality of a convention. First of all, by the way, there's been rules proposed for conventions in several sources I'd be happy to share with you. So we have rules already developed. 2017 Phoenix Planning Convention, which was the last convention of states, did propose rules for a convention. But how do you limit the scope of those amendments? So practically speaking, you're going to have committees, for example, on fiscal restraint. The Committee on Fiscal Restraint will come up with amendments. Those will go to the floor for vote. The simulated convention came up with six amendments. Uh, and, and you have to look at the practicality that you want uh, a few amendments, three, four, five, whatever it may be, in these areas. You've got to get those passed in 38 states. You have one shot here. So I think in many ways this comes down to the wisdom and the practicality of the convention to pass what is popular in the, in the states. In other words, term limits. It's a very popular thing. You know you can get that one. Fiscal restraint. The Germans and the Swiss both put debt breaks in their constitution. Extremely popular, extremely effective. So you have to look at what can we get through 38 state legislators or 38 state conventions. And so in many ways, it comes down to the wisdom of the convention to limit those amendments. Mr. Chair, one follow-up. Follow um, Senator, and you have confidence that given the wisdom of this future convention of an assembly of folks who we don't know how they represent their people and numerically, we don't know who those folks are, we don't know how they're selected, and we have no idea what the subjects are in particular. You have confidence that there's wisdom and, you know, Senator, I know you to be a moral and upstanding person and a terrific representative of your constituents. How do you have the assurance in your heart that some future gathering of folks, whether they're chosen by their states or whatever the process is and not knowing, not one rule today that would govern this process, how do you have that com comfort? Mr. Chair, thank you. Thank you for the question. First of all, these are state legislators, so these, are, these people are much closer to the, the ground of the people. The people standing behind us today are, are desperately pleading for us to go there. So I believe that the state legislatures can much more effectively address the questions that are at hand than what's happening in Congress. We have, and I'll close with these remarks, I'll make it short. We have a Congress that's completely out of control and untrustworthy. We have to have faith that ultimately men and women 
who are given an oath, who take an oath to propose amendments for the salvation of this nation will do, the, will do it right. Because, if you will, it's in a sense like the, our last resort. Madison said that. As a last resort, when you have no other options, and I'll quote that in my close, you have the process applicable to the state, use it. And so I have to say that I'm going to go with the framers, that they were wise enough, and that we are wise enough to do what is right and, and good for this nation. Thank you, Senators. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Any more questions from the committee? Seeing none, Senator, would you care to close? Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of this committee for your indulgence and patience in this uh, hearing. Uh, I know it's been long, and I, I want to thank both proponents and opponents. One thing I'm completely convinced of, everyone uh, testifying before this committee today has one interest at heart, the, our great nation's survival. And we all see trends that are fatal to this representative republic. It's my conviction that the convention method is the best method that we can pursue right now to make an impact, to make change. As I said, uh, Madison in 1830 said this in a letter to Edward Everett. You can, go, you can uh, search it online. He said, should the Constitution as here in review prove not to secure the governments and rights of the states against abuses and usurpations by the national authority. He said the final resort within the purview of the Constitution is an amendment to the Constitution according to the process applicable to the states. So you heard testimony that this was only to deal with defects. You can cherry pick the quote out of Federalist 43 where Madison said that and he was right. It did address defects. But Madison also said that it addresses abuses and usurpations. Uh, Hamilton in 85 said it addresses encroachments. So all, whether it's a defect, an encroachment, oppression, abuse, sometimes we get messed up in semantics. We had test, one testimony said that Mason said it was abuse, uh, uh, oppression. The senator here said it was abuse, semantics. We all know the difference. Those are basically the same word. Let me just close by saying this. <clears throat> Us legislators here have federal functions as the Constitution gives us. Huck B. Smith, 1920, defined that there are certain functions in the Constitution that are given specifically to state legislators. Several of those are the Times, Places, and Manner Clause of Article 1, Section 4. Says the times, places, and manners of choosing senators and representatives shall be prescribed by the state legislators thereof. State legislatures thereof. H.J. Uh, one in the Congress this year tried to undercut our constitutional federal function to choose the times, places, and manners of choosing senators and representatives. Just recently, in the 1.7 trillion Act, another undercut was Article Two where it's the state legislators' federal function to decide how we choose delegates or electors to the Electoral College. In that bill, that took away that responsibility from us 
our federal function, our duty, and gave it to the executive, whether it be secretary of state or governor, a direct undermining of our federal function. My point is that the Congress or that the framers of our Constitution gave state legislators certain federal functions to give check and balance to our government. In Article 5, they gave us a federal function, and that federal function is to push back on Congress. You heard all the fears that come about. Ultimately, you've got to put away fear and do your duty, just like I talked about with Uvalde or um, the, the city in Texas or Parkland in, in, in Florida. Those people who were given authority didn't take their duties seriously and didn't go in because of fear. SJ2 deals with fiscal restraint. We all know that the current financial situation of the United States is utterly shameful. It's on a dangerous and destructive path. It'll destroy our families, our freedom, our security in, an, in a hostile world. We need fiscal restraints. I'm not going to reiterate, again, the fiscal issues. We know $31.4 trillion, but no one has said that we're $277 trillion of unfunded liability. We have $12 trillion of guaranteed debt by the United States with Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae Freddie Mac housing bonds. We're going $1.2 trillion in the hole on payroll taxes. In other words, Medicaid, Social Security, Medicare. Those payroll taxes are $1.1 trillion or $2 trillion short every year. You have a demographic of 50 million Americans that are over 65 now that's going to go to 80 million. That's not, a sustainable, that's not sustainable. We also know that even under President Biden's budget, he expects 1.2 trillion of, or 1.1 trillion, I think, of interest on the debt by 2032. That's just interest on the debt. And that's before interest rates came up. So we are on an unsustainable path. And as much as my good friends who are opponents here, many of whom I deeply respect, are saying we just need to hold our Congress accountable, it's not working. We've been saying that since I was a little boy. Not working. We have to take action. We all understand the concept of federalism, that the power is not delegated by the Constitution to the United States or prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The concept of federalism under Article 10 or Amendment 10 was that we have certain reserved powers, members of this body, of this legislature. It was our reserve power to, to deal with our water, our air, our coal, our oil, our gas, our pipelines, our forests, our, our timber, our education system, our police systems. Yet name one area of those where the federal government has not encroached in our affairs, and I believe it's time for us to put a stop by using our, our federal function under Article 5 to say, enough, enough. Term limits, we keep hearing this, that we need term limits because we need experience in Congress. But let me ask this body, what has term limits gotten us? A balanced budget? Good tax policy? Good health care policy? A border? No. It's not gotten us any of those things. What we got is an entrenched bunch of dysfunctional, undisciplined congressmen 
who spend for their re-elections. No, we've gotten the opposite of that. We've gotten over 400 different agencies that control every minutia of our lives. You know, it's one thing to tell us what light bulb to screw into the socket. It's another thing to tell us what kind of medicine to take that could seriously jeopardize our lives and say, if you don't take that, you'll lose your job. For Washington to stop, we need to stop expecting Washington to change. Washington will not change because it's about power. It's about control. I said I would be hard on Washington, but Congress is about control. It's about control over you, your family, your money, the state's rights, every minutia of our lives. Remember, our founders did not fight a war against the British. They fought a war against big British centralized government. It's our obligation to bring back our government to a smaller government where the power is in the states. Democrat or Republican, we're, we're all legislators here. All of us would want the power in our hands to delegate what happens if our coal, water, air, wildlife, wolf, grizzly bear, etc. We don't want that in Washington. That's why we're so divided as a nation. Reagan said this, Congress cannot discipline itself. We must rely on the states to force Congress to act on our amendment. This was a balanced budget amendment that he's talking about. Fortunately, the nation's founders gave us the means to amend the Constitution through the action of the state legislators. That is the only strategy that will work. Calls with a story. In my office, I have multiple monitors on my desk. One day I was working on this issue, my right-hand monitor. I have the debt clock up. You all know what the debt clock is. Go to usdebtclock.com. And on the debt clock, you see these spinning red dials. That it'll make you go bonkers if you watch it too long, seriously. And one of my little grandsons, Harrison, who's six, came and he said, Papa, what's that? I said, that's the debt clock. Henry, who was seven, came in and said, what's that? And I said, well, that's Congress spending more money than they have. And Harrison, who's six, said, Papa, why won't it stop? Why won't it stop? We, members of this committee and members of this legislature, have a federal function, a sacred trust given by the framers. It is our duty, it is our hour to act. Let's stop it. It's in our hands. Thank you, members of the committee. Thank you. And that concludes our hearing on Senate Joint Resolution 2. Thank you for listening to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast. To learn more about our grassroots movement, go to www.conventionofstates.com.